Today's Skimmed from the Couch is presented by AC Hotels by Marriott. It's a global hotel brand that's dedicated to perfecting the essentials. I knew I was going to work incredibly hard at whatever I did and was just searching for something that would make a meaningful difference. And I felt that I wasn't alone, that I was like one of thousands of people out there who were searching for something similar. And that's really what led to this idea. I'm Carly Zakin. I'm Danielle Weisberg. Welcome to Skim from the Couch. This podcast is where we go deep on career advice from women who have lived it, from the good stuff like hiring and growing a team to the rough stuff like negotiating your salary and giving or getting hard feedback. We started the skim from a couch, so what better place to talk it all out than where it began on a couch? You may know today's guest, Wendy Kopp, as the founder of Teach for America, started back in 1989, which brought college grads into the workforce teaching in underserved schools. In 2007, Wendy took that concept and applied it globally, founding and running Teach for All. She's been recognized as one of Time Magazine's 100 Most Influential People and was awarded the Presidential Citizens Medal for her work. Wendy, welcome to the couch. We're excited to have you here today. Thanks so much. So uh, we're going to jump into it, which uh, first question, skim your resume for us. Well, my resume is not that long um, because, as as you just said, um, I thought of an idea when I was a senior in college that has really kept me busy ever since. I never would have guessed that I would still be going at it 30 years later, that it would take me all across this country and and really all across the world, first through Teach for America and and now Teach for All. And that's really the extent. I don't even have a resume (laughs) and hope never to have one. Well, what is not on your LinkedIn um, that we should know about you? Maybe the other side is that I have four kids and a loving husband and a wonderful family. We talked about when I was looking at the names, Teach for America and then Teach for All. Um, And I was thinking, Teach for All, like, do you feel like your work is done in America and now you're moving on? Oh, goodness. No. In fact, I mean, for many, many years until maybe 13, 14 years ago, I mean, I had my head down, fully focused on the massive inequities and continuing challenges in the U.S. I had honestly, I mean, it's almost embarrassing to say now, but I'd never thought about the rest of the world as it related to this. Um, What happened was that I started meeting people. I mean, there was something in the water. And within one year, I had met 13 people from 13 different countries who were just determined that something similar needed to happen in their countries and were looking for help. And that is what ultimately led to the launch of of Teach for All 12 years ago now as a network of independent, locally led organizations in now, you know, 50, soon to be more than that, um, countries and growing. Walk us through what it what it meant to step down from Teach for America to do Teach for All, like what that meant for you in your career. Um. It's so interesting because I must admit, I don't think I thought about it as stepping down exactly. I think in the five years prior, Teach for America had doubled in size and Teach for All had grown from zero to 25 network partners. Um, 
And sort of as I have done and as anyone growing an enterprise does at every year along the way, you kind of constantly ask yourself, like, what does this need? You know, like, what what does Teach for America need? What does Teach for All need? And it, it just became really clear that each of these organizations needed dedicated leadership. And, um, you know, there was so much amazing leadership at Teach for America, and it just felt like it was ready for, um, you know, Elisa Villanueva Beard is an incredible woman who really grew up in one of the communities in which Teach for America works and then became a core member and then, you know, joined our team and really helped build Teach for America, um, you know, to to step forward and and lead the organization, which she now does. So it, it wasn't it wasn't hard. Like, I didn't feel like I was giving something up. It just felt like this is great. Like she can take it to the level it needs to go to. And and I can put all the more energy in, into Teach for All, which it, it needed at the time as well. So I'd be hard pressed to find another example of someone whose senior year college project has received more accolades and honorary <laughs> degrees that have come from it, truly. You have won so many awards. You have earned 14 honorary doctorates. Which one is meant to most to you? I honestly just feel so unbelievably privileged to have somehow found my way to this idea that has enabled me to, you know, work with such incredible hearts, minds, and souls all over the world who are kind of drawn to the same thing and to be part of something that's making such a meaningful difference. Um, and that's that's all I focus on, honestly. Did you have a moment though when you got the Presidential Medal of Honor where you were like, how is this happening? <laughs> not really. I have to admit, I mean, this, it's just not, it's not what you. keeps me going. Okay, that's fair. What does a typical day look like for you? Do you have a routine? Is there a consistency in your days? There's so much variety in my days, right? Mm -hmm. Like, I mean, I just got back from two weeks across, you know, visiting Teach for Afghanistan and Teach for Nepal and Teach for India and Teach for Thailand, um, and then went on a week of, you know, fundraising on the West Coast. And now I'm in New York, which is a rare thing where I actually live and I'm like, just got my days packed with internal meetings. And that's part of the beauty mm -hmm. of this whole thing, you know. Um, but I try to stay on a bit of a routine. Like I get up really early and look at what has creeped into my email box um, and, you know, go on a run and, and then get my day going. So I want to go back to you as the college student. Who are you in college? And when you think about looking back at who you were then and who you are now, how are you different? Oh, gosh, that's a really big, good question. I was in a total funk my senior year. Yeah. I, I could not think of a thesis topic. I couldn't think of anything I wanted to do after I graduated. And I and think sorry, it was... For our listeners, where did you go to school? I went to Princeton. And until my senior year, I had been in overdrive from birth, right? <laughs> like, But I think it was almost being in that funk that ultimately led to this inspiration. Like I was just searching for something. I knew I was going to work incredibly hard at whatever I did and was just searching for something that would make a meaningful difference. And I felt that I wasn't alone, that I was like one of thousands of people out there who were searching for something similar. And that's really what led to this idea. Like, why aren't we being called upon? I mean, at the time we were being called upon so aggressively to commit just two years to work on Wall Street. You know, it's like, why aren't we being recruited as aggressively to commit just two years to teach in 
low-income communities, like to address the inequity and opportunity, you know? Um, So that's what led me to the idea, um, which, I mean, I was the last senior to declare a topic. I couldn't even find an advisor. Anyway, from the minute I thought of it, I just realized this has to happen. And I've been obsessed ever since. So anyway, I don't even know how to explain all the ways in which I have changed and evolved. It would be hard to read that thesis. I, I think I had little concept. Have you ever reread it? Um, honestly, I skimmed it a, several years ago and realized, okay, yeah. yeah, like I don't want to spend I mean, I wouldn't want to reread anything no, I wrote no, now. No. Like, um, I mean, you can just imagine the incredible learning curves on every front that I have gone through from, first of all, just the substance of the work. I mean, you know, really what it takes to recruit and develop people who will be effective teachers for the kids facing the greatest challenges um, and who will learn the right lessons and then go on to affect systemic change. I mean, just I had really no idea um, what would be entailed in that. And then all the other aspects from how to build a strong organization to how to actually build a sustainable funding base to how to navigate the politics of of the world. Um, and I think I went through just massive learning curves with Teach for America and then a whole new set of learning curves with Teach for All. How do you build a network that, you know, has everyone united, but also everyone encouraged to innovate? And, um, and how do you navigate the foreign aid system? I feel nothing but like incredible privilege to go through all these learning curves. I'd love for you to explain kind of the central thesis around Teach for America for our listeners. Yeah. And around Teach for America and also Teach for All, really, because it's there's a core purpose that unites all of us across the Teach for All network, from Teach for America to Teach for India to, to many, many others in between. I mean, I think we have to start by thinking about the nature of the problem. Like, we're all working to address the fact that the circumstances of kids' birth predict their educational outcomes and life outcomes. And we view that as a really complex problem, right? Like it doesn't start in classrooms. There are whole segments of kids in countries all around the world that face many extra challenges. They show up at schools when we're lucky enough for them to show up at schools that were really never designed to meet their extra needs. There's a whole prevailing ideology about the low potential of these kids that fuels the whole thing. So it's a complex problem. And in the face of a complex problem like that, there's no one solution, right? We're not going to solve this problem with any one thing, not with heroic teachers, not with a different curriculum, not with a laptop. I mean, this is going to take so many changes to really address. And and our whole belief is, you know, we we need to change the whole system. And that's going to take a lot of people at every level of the system, at every level of policy, across sectors, in communities you know, coming together around a vision for all kids having the chance to fulfill their potential. So we think of our mission as to develop collective leadership to ensure all children fulfill their potential um, and share an approach to doing that, which is all around kind of galvanizing a rising generation of leaders in any given country to channel their energy into the arena of working with the most marginalized kids initially to commit two years to teach, knowing that those two years can be really important for the kids they're working with, and also knowing that what you learn through that process for the teacher themselves is so transformational, like it changes 
everything, your understanding of the problem, your commitment to addressing it. And it becomes foundational for a lifetime of leadership. And and so we're trying to grow the force of people who throughout their lives, working at every level of the system and, and across sectors, will be committed to working for change and who through their own leadership will support and catalyze the leadership of others, their students, the students' parents, other teachers in the schools, others in their communities. You've just talked about how big the issue is and that there isn't one solution. When you think about doing this for 30 years, how do you keep that passion up? Do you burn out? Do you ever feel like this is just too big? I think one of the things about this role of mine is that, I mean, every day I see juxtaposed, on the one hand, the incredible disparities and inequities we're addressing, and on the other hand, evidence that it really is possible to solve them. And I think that juxtaposition has kept me going for 30 years. I honestly don't think I've ever felt burned out. You know, again, I feel like it's such a privilege to be able to see this at so many different levels. Like I can zoom in and be kind of somewhat proximate to the issues and then zoom out and see real evidence. I mean, honestly, right now what keeps me going is just seeing what's happening in communities where we've been working for, in some cases, 30 years. And to see... You know, if you have historical perspective, despite the fact that, yes, it's not anywhere near where we need it to be today, if you have historical perspective, you realize, oh my gosh, but how much worse it was even 20 years ago. What was the first uh, school or city you went into? We started in in six areas of the U.S. in, you know, New York City, Los Angeles, New Orleans, um, some rural communities in, in North Carolina I'm and Georgia. I'm curious when you skimmed your thesis, <laughs> or when you think back to the lessons of those earliest years, what do you think the organization and you were most wrong about that you corrected over time? I think that we underestimated how much would need to go into the training and development of the teachers and, and their ongoing support, not only during the two years, but beyond the two years to really maximize their impact as a force for change. Um, there were some things that we got right without realizing we were onto something. I mean, I have to say, like, there there are these new studies that are about to come out that look at what happens to these teachers during the two years. They look at how these people's, everything from their career trajectories, but also their mindsets, their beliefs, their understanding of the nature of the problem, the nature of the solutions evolve. And I think what becomes clear from that is that we kind of landed on, and I never could have known that this would be true, but um, an approach to cultivating ongoing leadership that's, you know, really almost unparalleled. Like it's it's really dramatic, the the impact of those two years of teaching. And I don't know if we could have fully predicted that. I want to talk about overcoming doubt and naysayers. So I, in researching and preparing for this, uh, I was struck by a quote that I think one of your professors said to you when you had this idea and realized that you were onto something and you wanted to go out and raise um, about two and a half million dollars. And I hope I'm not paraphrasing what he said, but he said that you were deranged. You are around 22 years old, 21 years old at this time. What, what made you not listen to that? What made you not be like, okay, my professor just told me I'm deranged, like, screw you, like I'm going. Like what made you um, have that? 
naivete. <laughs> um, I mean, I I do think that there's a real advantage in 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 experience because you don't fully know <laughs> what you can't do. You know, I think a lot of the key to everything actually is is operating at kind of the right line between confidence and humility. And there were certain things I was just absolutely convinced about and had had some reason to be confident about and other things that I was really open about and and trying to get feedback on. I'm not sure what exactly he was referencing. I don't know if it was exactly the money issue. I think most people in the beginning, the big thing they didn't believe was that college students would want to do this. And that was the one thing I had any reason to have confidence about having just been a college student. I was like, no, no, no. Like, we will show people, like, call upon the college students to do it. They will jump at it. But there were other things where folks really pushed and questioned, which which really helped us evolve our approach. So... You talk about college students will want to do this, and obviously you've proved that to be true. I think that a lot of people feel a tug between lending their skills, even in your case, like being able to build something from scratch. There's a way that this could have probably with your skill set become something that was much more corporate driven and made a lot more money um, versus doing good. And I think that's a struggle that we hear a lot from our audience, from people that are starting out is, how do I make a choice? I mean, I was in a position when I was graduating from college where I felt that I had nothing to lose by taking a risk and doing what I really wanted to do. And I felt like if if it didn't prove to be the right thing, I could you know, move to something else later. And not everyone has that luxury because there are all sorts of pressures on kids from financial to to the next thing. And it wasn't that I had money. I mean, I needed to like figure out some way to sustain myself and do this, but I didn't have a ton of debt. Like there there were things that enabled me to do it. But I guess my my thought coming from that vantage point is just, you know, do what you what you love, like do what you're going to find really meaningful. And if you can't do that right after you graduate from college, it's going to be really tough to ultimately make that choice. So that's not a perfect answer maybe, but it's, I think it's the path of no regrets, like dive in, you know, and, and do everything you can at the front end before you have just immense pressure, you know, from kids and, and life. You talked about not having debt and we're part of a generation that has unprecedented amounts of student loans, and it's it's a huge issue. Have you seen um, there been any impact on that with Teach for America? I mean, Teach for America has done so much to try to make it financially possible for anyone to do Teach for America, from loan forgiveness to grants programs to you know many other arrangements. And Teach for America has become more and more diverse over time in terms of you know, everything from folks who come in with Pell Grants to people who grew up in low-income communities. Um, so I think, but I think they find it a challenge for sure. I mean, you know, and, and we need to put all the more into making it financially feasible as as time goes on. One of the criticisms that's come out against um, Teacher America has been that these are young individuals who are not trained or certified in a traditional way going in to educate the next generation of kids. How do you push back against it? 
Well, I think so. First of all, we look at the evaluations that show that the Teach for America teachers are are having at least as significant an impact, if not more impact than, you know, other teachers who would be in those classrooms. Um, You know, if 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 that wasn't the case, then we'd have to rethink everything. And, And we also see you know, really significant long-term impacts um, coming from the fact that these folks never leave the work, right? You know, and these are people who probably never would have taught for the vast, vast majority of them and, and not in low-income communities who 85% of whom are, are full-time in the work, you know, two-thirds in education, another 20% in policy and other related endeavors in, in the U.S. And they're working to change a really broken system that has never served our low-income kids and kids of color well. Um, So I guess that's how I think about it. Like we need these folks alongside many, many others, um, you know, to tackle a system that has never worked. Where do you think at this point now, you know, Teach for America is 30 years old, almost 30 years old, Teach for All is where you're spending your time. What aspect of your job are you able to provide the most value at this point? Is it on the policy side? Is it on the organizational side? Where do you, Where's your kind of genius zone right now? You know, I'm spending my time on lots of different things. I just got back from spending time with, with Teach for India and other network partners in Asia um, and can help them. I mean, they're earlier on in the trajectory trying to figure out how do we how do we get bigger and better? And of course, I can see so many patterns from having seen these network partners all around the world and having lived the Teach for America journey for so long. Um, so that's that's one thing I love to do. Um, at the same time, I spend a lot of my energy trying to marshal the resources necessary to do this work because there's actually not a very significant constituency for global education. I mean, people think very locally and nationally about tackling education. And what we've seen across Teach for All is that we could be moving so much more quickly if we were, in fact, taking a global approach and learning from each other across borders. But finding the resources to do that is super challenging. So, I mean, I spend a lot of energy doing that. I'm not sure it's where my genius is, but it's just kind of what you need to do if you're going to make this happen. We'll get back to that in a minute, but first let's talk about something that every guest on this show deals with, including us, and that's traveling for business. We calculated we were on like 23 flights, a different hotel every night for the month of June, and it was amazing book tour. We're so happy we did it. One of the biggest takeaways is learning about what helps on the road. And a great hotel is like the only thing we wanted at the end of the day. And we found that with AC Hotels by Marriott. AC Hotels, they really built the hotel with a designer's eye. So every hotel is equal parts, just really beautiful to look at. Seriously, look at their Instagram, but also functional. Everything from the guest rooms to the lobby to their lounge are designed to know what you need before you need it. It's intuitive, which is really, really helpful. In the U.S., AC Hotels has over 45 locations in cultural hubs uh, with plans to double that, not to mention their global expansion. So visit AC Hotels at achotels.marriott.com to learn more. Um, We saw an interview, I think, with Inc. that you said, my greatest asset was my inexperience. And I love that you took what could be seen as a negative and you flipped it 
and into a positive. It feels inspiring. What is your greatest asset now? Well, I've always thought that we need both inexperience and experience. I mean, always. I, and um, I think there is something super powerful about inexperience. Um, like we need people before they become, you know, sort of jaded by the way things work and, you know, to ask the crazy questions. Like mm -hmm. we need to challenge the current paradigm. And at the same time, we do need the folks with experience. And, um you know, so I try to keep both of those things in mind, um, you know, and figure out how do we build an organization that unleashes the leadership of everyone from the folks without experience to the folks with experience. Like, I do think we need all of us. So we started this company with absolutely no business or finance knowledge at all. Um, like none. We have learned all of it on the way. And sometimes people ask us, like, did you ever think about going to business school. And I, depending on the day, flip back and forth. Part of me is like, it would be really nice at times if I had just like a breakdown of 101, what what are all the things that have taken me so long to learn? Um, and other times I'm like, no, I think that would ruin so much of how we think about things. Um, have you thought about teaching yourself? I went through a whole era where I was just dying to get into the classroom. Um, you know, and I actually do believe pretty deeply that, I mean, there's a lot that I'm missing because I haven't taught. And I feel it on an almost, I mean, almost daily basis. Like, I think that the folks who have taught and particularly, you know, in the context in which we're working, have a different level of both insight and conviction about what's possible and a different level of credibility. And I'll never have that. Like, there's no way to do this through osmosis, right? Um, but at the same time, you know, we all make our choices. And, you know, I've always felt like, for whatever reason, and who knows if it was even the right choice, but that my greatest impact would come from, you know, making a different choice. So... When we started this, I asked you, what was the moment that you were excited around the different degrees and honors? And, and you said that that's not what gets you. So what gets you? What 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 have been the moments where you're like, I am really proud of myself? <laughs> um, yeah, what gets me is, is, is making an impact and seeing things work and, you know, making the breakthroughs. You Has know? there been a moment where you're like, this is... Go me. <laughs> there are moments all the time. You know, even last week, you know, like we've had a really challenging year. This is the most boring thing to talk about. But like, you know, any social entrepreneur will relate. Like if you don't have the money to do the work, it doesn't happen. So we got to find a path to a diversified and sustainable funding base. And we've just had a really challenging year and we pulled it off. You know, and I felt like go me <laughs> and all the team. Um, and then there have been many moments. I mean, again, I feel so lucky to say this, but, um, you know, where you just see like it's working. I mean, we are 12 years in and in 50 countries, um, this approach that brings us all together is it's like the same movie plane in terms of the people who are drawn to this work and the impact they have, 
in their schools and the degree to which they never leave the work, right? So like incredible. And that's not about me. I mean, it's about like so many people in so many different countries and and so many colleagues. But yeah, I really constantly see evidence that what we're doing is is working. I also see plenty of evidence, by the way, that we're nowhere near where we all want to be. And that's also what keeps me going, like more problems to solve, you know. With something as big as the mission of Teach for All, how do you think about measuring success for the organization? And I'm sure there's not just one answer, but also for you personally. Well, we stepped back as a network three years ago and asked ourselves, like, what's the 25-year vision? Like, what are we all working on together? We asked ourselves about 25 years because of the big insight that we've come to along the way, which is that this is a very long game. I mean, this is not one of these problems that we can, like, create a vaccine for or solve overnight. Um, It really takes going at it over time. Um, So we came together around a vision that And this is going to sound really, really lofty, but there were certain choices that have been extremely orienting and that kind of inform the question of how we measure impact. Um, So the vision we articulated was that we would have whole communities in every part of the world enabling all their children to have the education, support, and opportunity to shape a better future for themselves and all of us. Super lofty. That's that's big. Yeah. Previously, we were all united by this idea that all kids should have the opportunity to attain an excellent education. But there was such a good push across the network to say an excellent education to what end? And we were thinking about where will the world be in 25 years, right? Like the economy is changing so much. The planet is falling apart. We have these increasingly complex problems facing communities, facing our global society. And it really did bring into stark relief, you know, like if our kids today, like the kids in classrooms today are not growing as leaders who have the proficiencies and dispositions and mindsets and values and, you know, sense of agency and awareness to navigate the changing economy and solve these increasingly complex problems, there is no hope for any of us. So it really was a reorientation in that sense to say, okay, so we really need to rethink education entirely and work towards a much broader set of outcomes for kids. And I think the other piece of it was just realizing in order to make progress against this challenge, we do really need collective leadership. Like we need people working together. And the only way to see that is to have people coming together within certain places. So the focus on, you know, clustering our folks in certain communities and really working in deep partnership with the folks in those communities to say, okay, what are we working towards for kids? And to work over time, not only through the teachers who teach, commit two years to teach, but through our alumni and through our partners and others in the schools and communities to say, how do we really move the needle for kids in an aggregate sense towards this broad set of outcomes? So in order to measure progress against that, we need to look at a lot of things. And of course, we need to see like, for the teachers during their two years, are they making an impact? But we really also need to see, are the communities in which we're working making aggregate progress for kids? Depending on the country and the community, I mean, the, the measures are somewhat different, but are we seeing, you know, more kids graduate, more kids go into whether it's college or other strong post-secondary options? Like, are we, are we really moving the needle for kids in an aggregate sense? 
We're going to go to our last segment, which is our lightning round. Um, this is um, our favorite segment. And basically, we're going to ask you a bunch of questions. Uh, you have to answer as quickly this as possible. This is my most terrifying segment. No, this will be great. Okay. No, this is good. <laughs> First job. I worked in a craft store. Oh. Worst job. Filing things for a bank after my senior year in high school. Yeah. What is the worst professional mistake you've ever made? Probably trying to do too much myself rather than just find the people who could do it much better. Last thing you binge watched. I was just going to. Uh, okay. I almost never binge watch, but I have to admit that this weekend, one of my kids is sick. I watched at least five episodes and maybe more of Veep. Oh, it's very good. Huh. With him. <laughs> <laughs> First call when you get good news. My husband, Richard. What about bad news? Same thing. If you had a bad day, what should someone do for you? Is, are you like an ice cream person? Do you need Bring a glass me of a wine? glass of white wine. Yeah. <laughs> Fair. Who's your mentor? I have to say I don't have one. I have so many people helping me every day and guiding me, but I really can't point to, to just one. When was the last time you negotiated for yourself? This morning. <laughs> How'd it go? <laughs> well, meaning like... People and the world and this work will just take 100%. So we have to be clear about our limits. And this morning I was fully inundated and I was just like, I got to go on a run. So I did it. And I feel like my whole day is making decisions like that. Like, what is the space that I need? What's your shameless plug? Either teach in or fund a teach for all organization www.teachforall.org. Wendy, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thanks for hanging out with us. Join us next week for another episode of Skim from the Couch. And if you can't wait until then, subscribe to our daily email newsletter that gives you all the important news and information you need to start your day. Sign up at theskim.com. That's the S-K-I-M-M dot com. Two M's for a little something extra.